Welcome to From the Source with Frankie and Sarah from Baker Tilly KDN. This podcast is about helping business owners and entrepreneurs understand and overcome their tax planning challenges. Join us for this journey as Frankie Loretto and Sarah Netley draw from years of expertise and guest experts to help make complex tax planning concepts make sense. Welcome to From the Source with your hosts, Frankie and Sarah. I'm Wendy McConnell. This is where you get the right information right from the source. Hey there, Frankie, Sarah, how are we today? Hey, Wendy, we're good. We're great. Yeah, Ready to rock and roll. So we're going to be talking about some really fun stuff today, right? Very fun stuff. Yeah. And today, Wendy, this might seem a bit surprising, but today is going to be our first really heavy tax topic on this podcast. And that might be surprising because, you know, you and some of our listeners might have felt that uh, our previous podcast had some pretty technical tax stuff. But today we're talking about the capital gains exemption, and it has very specific criteria under the Income Tax Act that we want to go through and explain to our listeners. Uh, so, you know, hopefully everyone can bear with us as we we talk a bit, you know, tax heavy today. We don't like taxes, but we got to live with them, right? Exactly. Absolutely. This is a good topic, too, because as you'll see, there's some some pretty good tax savings on this one. For sure. Very lucrative. So on that point, I know hopefully we didn't scare everybody off saying we have a really tax technical heavy topic today, but don't tune us out yet. And the reason is because... If you utilize this capital gains exemption that Sarah's mentioned, it could save you upwards of a quarter of a million dollars if you use the whole exemption, which is a lot of coin. So super high level, the capital gains exemption you know, becomes relevant when an individual is looking to sell their business. It's usually one of the first questions we get asked by a client when they're thinking about selling their business. And it's very much like, so what's the deal with this capital gains exemption? It's like, I know it's out there. I don't know when to use it. Can I use it? I want to use it. Exactly. And so if you've listened to our fourth episode with Scott, we've talked about maximizing value. So today's, you know, you've gone through, you've maximized your business value. Today, we want to talk about how you then save tax and and keep more cash in your pocket. And so really business owners are really focused on what is the exemption and how much will it save me if I can utilize it? Today, we really want to talk about who's eligible for this exemption, what the exemption is, and then really hone in on the criteria that a business owner needs to be aware of to ensure that they meet the criteria to claim this exemption. So let's start with what is the capital gains exemption? a great question. And before we just jump right in, we're going to take a step back and talk tax 101. uh, Because I think for business owners to understand, you know, the concept of a capital gains exemption, we have to make sure everybody understands what a capital gain is. And so a capital gain um, can be realized when you own capital property, and you sell it for more than what you bought that capital property for. So your capital gain is your proceeds from the sale of that capital asset minus what you've paid for. And so if you have a gain, there's then an opportunity to shelter some of that capital gain with this capital gains exemption. So for starters, every taxpayer in Canada has a capital gains exemption. You know, I have one, Frankie has one. Sorry, Wendy, you're in the US, so you don't have one. (laughs) The question then becomes, do you have the right type of capital asset to take advantage of this capital gains exemption? 
Yeah. And, and Sarah, you mentioned capital property, which has its own definition in the <laughs> Income Tax Act, which we will not bore everybody with. No. But I think common things the average person will see a capital gain on is if they have shares in companies or if they have real estate, they'll see if they sell those for more than they bought them, they'll have a capital gain show up on their tax return. So not to turn this into a history lesson, but I think we need to go back to the beginning just to understand why this got so complicated. <laughs> and years ago, you could use the capital gains exemption and the, the limit to what you could use that exemption on was, it was very broad, but at the same time, the exemption limit, so the amount of tax you could save was a lot lower than what it is today. So I try to have a rule to not use too much tax lingo, but I'm going to break that rule in the next couple seconds, but it will be brief. For reference, there's really four types of capital assets that are eligible for the capital gains exemption. So here comes the tax lingo. We got the qualified small business corporation shares. We've got qualified farmer fishing property. We have shares of a family farm or fishing corporation, and we have an interest in a family farm or fishing partnerships. So today, we're just going to be focusing on taxpayers who sell qualified small business corporation shares, because the farm rules could be not even a podcast episode. It could be an entire podcast, how confusing and how much is going on there. A whole exactly. We're just going to push that to the side. So I, hopefully for simplicity for our listeners, let's just break it down into kind of two buckets. Yes, there's four categories Frankie just reamed off, but we basically have our small business corporations, and then we have everything else that's farming and fishing related. Um, and so like Frankie said at the top of the podcast, uh, the capital gains exemption is really lucrative for business owners who sell their qualified small business corporation shares. The current exemption limit in 2023 is around $971,000. And the nice thing is, is that's indexed for inflation. So each year that grows up, you know, incrementally. Uh, for 2023, that does represent a tax savings of up to $260,000. Um, and that's, you know, if you're in the top tax bracket, that would be kind of the top tax savings. Just as a side note, and again, we're not kind of, we're not touching on qualified, uh, farm and fishing property, those categories today. But the exemption limit for that other bucket of, of farm property is a million dollars currently, and it's not indexed for inflation at, at the moment. So it's just a set amount. You said you weren't talking about farming, so stop that. No, so stop. Will, that'll be the <laughs> last time we say farming today. Okay. Yes. We love um, our farmers. We'll, we we'll do. Say that. We love our farmers. We We're just, your rules are confusing. Yes, they are. Exactly. <laughs> So I guess the one thing, Sarah, you said around 260,000. So that number and Sarah and I are so used to saying that because we're in Ontario and like that's, that's the right. top, that's Good at point. the top tax rate for Ontario. So if you are in a different province Good. and we're just ballparking it too. So just so be aware of that. But anyway, really what that means is up to $971,000 of capital gains on the sale of, of qualifying shares. I'm going to condense that term qualifying shares won't result in any income tax liability. One thing to note, though, is there's a fun little mechanism in the Canadian tax system called alternative minimum tax, which is a real treat. Uh, so even in situations where you have no income tax to pay, you can be caught paying alternative minimum tax, which can be refundable. Anyway, it's complicated and it's definitely outside the scope of what we're trying to talk about today. Exactly. So we'll just put that back in the drawer. 
along it's with just, the farming. Exactly. It's just <laughs> something to be aware of because business owners have it in their mind. 971,000 of, of gains are tax-free, but when they come and file their tax return, you know, April of the following year, they see, oh, what is this? Why do I owe the government? And it's usually because of alternative minimum tax. Like Frankie said, you can get it refunded in future years, but it's just critical that people understand that there is this second tax calculation that happens so that they're not shocked when they file their tax return. But again, I think that's a great topic for another day. Yeah. So before we get into the specifics, so like some common examples of shares that will not qualify for the exemption are things like investments and and public companies. So if you have public company shares and you sell those, you cannot claim the capital gains exemption on those. Um, If you have investments in a private Canadian company, but you only hold passive investments, so things like an investment portfolio, or if you have some rental properties that don't require that much management, they're just, uh, you know, passive forms of income for you those shares of that company will likely not qualify for the exemption. So Sarah alluded to earlier that the Income Tax Act has a bunch of tests and conditions. There's really three main tests that we're going to go through today. And we're really going to oversimplify this. So if there's any tax specialists listening, please don't come for us. We're trying to make this as simple as possible. So we're going to make it really, really general. So the first test is called the holding period test. The second test, we call it the 90% uh, asset test, which is sometimes in the tax world referred to as the small business corporation test. And we have the last test, which is the 50% asset test. So So we're going to talk about the holding period test first. I think in our minds, this was maybe the simpler one to jump off with. And it really is what it sounds like. Have you held the shares of your company for the right amount of time? So this test requires that for 24 months leading up to the sale date, no unrelated person uh, can have held those shares. So it's generally pretty obvious if someone unrelated to you has held the shares during that period. But there are circumstances where that's not so obvious and it's important to go through you know, that this test with your tax advisor, your accountant to make sure you haven't been offside. Yeah. So some situations like where it is more obvious is, you know, if you've personally held those shares for 24 months, you're, you're likely good. Or if your spouse or your child has held those shares for 24 months, consecutive 24 months leading up to the sale, you're likely good. Where it gets complicated is within the last 24 months leading up to the sale, you've issued shares out of treasury. Um, If there has been a corporate reorganization, if you've introduced, say, a family trust into your corporate group, this rule can get really, really complicated. And that's because there are rules, there's exceptions to those rules, and there's exceptions to those exceptions to those rules. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Now, let's just make it easy for everybody. Exactly. On top of exceptions. You know what, yeah. Wendy, if, if it was easy, then we probably wouldn't have a job. So you, know what? you are absolutely <laughs> correct. So I think the takeaway for listeners with the holding period test is if you can look back and over those 24 months prior to your sale date and your sale date being the day that you know you signed that share purchase agreement and you're the only one that's held them, 
you will be fine. If you've done restructuring, then you're going to want to sit down with your advisor to understand how that restructure or how incorporating a new business uh, to run your your business will impact your holding period test. And and when Frankie and I are looking at uh, restructuring uh, for our clients, this is one thing we're very mindful of is ensuring that we can do steps that maintain the integrity of that 24-month holding period. And it's not always possible. So again, just be being super mindful that when you're going through that share restructuring, that you understand the implications of the 24-month holding period test. The other two tests are more asset focused. So both of the tests look at whether your corporation has the right asset mix in order to qualify for this capital gains exemption. Yeah. Starting with the 90% test, it essentially states that as of the date of the sale, the share that is being sold or shares is of a Canadian controlled private company where 90% or more of the asset value consists of assets, which the majority of the usage is in an active business in Canada. So even just now, I thought I was simplifying that mm-hmm. from what it says in the act, but I think I just, in my mind, right-clicked thesaurus every fifth word and made it just, just as confusing. Just as well, confusing. Can you give an example then? Maybe? Yes. Okay. So what I'm going to do is maybe instead of an example, I'm just going to break down. There's about three different kind of criteria within, within that one super long carry-on sentence, but that's legal writing. Three so, sub-criteria within yeah, one criteria I'd to say, make it fun. I'd say the first one is, is the company, you know, a public company? If so, then I'm in, I'm out of luck. Is the company controlled by a non-resident of Canada directly or indirectly? If so, I'm out of luck. The company needs to be a private company controlled by a Canadian resident. So if I own 100% of my shares, I live in Ontario, I am good. And I'm a resident of Ontario. I am good for that first part of the test. So then we move on to the asset part, and this part's going to be tricky. So Sarah, feel free to jump in if I make this more confusing. So I usually say you need to look at each of the assets on your balance sheet and determine whether each of those assets is used 50% or more of the time in your operations. So if you have, I'm going to say, let's say you've got a building which you operate out of and you rent 10% of that to an unrelated person, I still use that 90% of the time for my active business because I'm operating out of it. That asset is what we call a good asset, an active asset. So you essentially need to do that with all of your assets and then look at the total value of those. And if that represents 90% of the value of all of your assets, you are good for this test. That was very well said. I think that really breaks down that kind of long-winded test into kind of the three important sub-criteria. So I think the one other thing, Sarah, I just wanted to make this last part clear before uh, I let you go, um, is the operation. So those active operations, it needs to be mostly in Canada. So the term is primarily in Canada. So we say 50% or more of your operations need to be in Canada. So if you're a Canadian resident, you control a company, but all of your operations are in the States you're not going to be able to use this test. Exactly. And this test is a point in time test. And the, that point in time that we're always so concerned about is the sale date. So you, you know, immediately before you're closing your transaction, you're looking at your balance sheet and you're making sure that, you know, that 90% test is met. So 
you're not looking at it for the first time at date of closing. You're always looking, you're, you're being very mindful leading up, but you have to be on side at that point of time. And that's different than the 50% test. So the 50% test is effectively the same as Frankie just explained, except your threshold now is that more than 50% of the fair market value of your assets, you know, are used in an active business carried on primarily in Canada. Um, but instead of it being a point in time test, you have to look back and this 50% threshold has to be met for the 24 months leading up to the sale date. So it's a lower threshold, but it's a much longer threshold, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. So it's kind of like the holding period test where you have to be, you're looking at this test for consecutive 24 months. So if you have one day where you have a bunch of passive assets, effectively they throw you offside for that 50% test, that resets the clock. You now have to start that next day and look at that 50% test again. So to be clear, we got three tests going on. We have a holding period test. We got the two asset tests. You need to meet all of these in order to use the exemption. We're going through a lot of material here and all of them you need to be on side for. So this is why we said at the top of the episode, very tax heavy. It's quite confusing. And you're not expected to know all this, but we'll go into it a little bit more, the importance for you as the business owner, why you need to know this information. So just when you think that you've got all your bases covered, an exemption comes in and says, oh, nope, you can't use it. Exactly. 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 And and that's sometimes a frustrating thing when a business owner is ready to sell. The 90% test, because it's that point in time test, there's probably things we can do to, we'll say purify. That's the terminology we use in tax, purify the company, right? If you have too much cash, you know, you pay down liabilities, you know, prepay some tax installments, if needed, pay yourself a bonus or um, dividend to get that cash out. So that's, somewhat manageable, but the 50% test is not manageable. If you're going to sell your company and 19 months ago, you know, that you didn't meet that 50% threshold, the only remedy is to wait for that 24 month clock to reset. So that's why it's important, I think, as a business owner to understand these tests and monitor their balance sheet, you know, on a somewhat regular basis. So I think this is a good point for us to take a little break. I'd like a little sip of water, stretch our legs, and we're going to come back and really talk about what you as a business owner can do to make sure you are meeting these tests. Okay, so now that everyone's had a chance to stretch your legs, take a sip of water, hopefully digest uh, all the information we've just thrown at you, um, what we want to do is go through typical balance sheet categories that you as a business owner are going to see on your trial balance or your balance sheet and talk about why this asset could cause you problems for the capital gains exemption. And 
we would recommend that again on a you know somewhat frequent basis you're going through the balance sheet yourself and identifying if there's any of these categories that will give you a you know a headache if you were to sell your business tomorrow yeah i think it's important to highlight that when we're checking to see if these tests are met, either the 50% or the 90% test, we're looking at the fair market value of the assets. We're not looking at the book value for accounting. So while it's important to be looking at your balance sheet for at least high level to see if you're meeting these tests, we can't solely look at the balance sheet. That's right. Because I guess two things, all kind of stemming from the the one thing is depending on the accounting policy you use, and Sarah and I are not accounting policy experts, you could have assets that are either have a book value that's significantly different than what the fair value of that asset is, or you could have assets that are not on the balance sheet because they are not required to be for accounting purposes, but they do have significant value. Exactly. That's a very good point, Frankie. So looking at the balance sheet categories, but then restating from book value to fair market value is the exercise that we recommend. So let's just start, I think, with cash. So cash and you know near cash term deposits are going to be the first item that you see on your balance sheet, your trial balance. And so on first blush, it probably seems, well, yeah, I need cash in my business to operate. I need cash to fund working capital requirements, you know, to pay current liabilities and pay payroll. But There does come a point where you have too much cash in your business from a capital gains exemption point of view. So generally, you have to think about if you were to pull out a substantial amount of cash from your business, would you be able to still operate? Could you still fund your current payables in a timely manner without that cash? And if the answer is yes, then that portion is probably not needed in the business and therefore isn't an active business and is an asset that's going to put you offside. So you can certainly kind of divide your your total cash balance into two, right? The good cash balance that's going to count towards the value of the assets for your capital gains exemption, and then the portion that's not going to count. Yeah, and there'll be differences based on your your industry. Is there seasonality in your business? So for example, if you are a business that I'm going to take, like a landscaping business, where you're going to have a lot of business, a lot of cash, probably in those spring months in Ontario. And then winter months are probably going to be a little slower. If you have a sale in spring when you've got a huge cash balance, that's not going to typically throw you offside because it would subsequently reduce. That's just the natural part of your business operation. So you have to look at things like like your industry and Working capital, Sarah, you brought up is a good point because if the typical working capital ratio for your industry is two to one and you've got a six to one ratio when you factor in your cash, you probably have a little bit more cash than you need to run your active business. Exactly. And so cash is somewhat easy to deal with, especially so assuming you've met the 50% test and we're coming close to a sale and you want to meet that 90% test. I think I mentioned earlier pay down your liabilities, right? If you have some accounts payable, if you have long-term debt, take that cash and just pay all that down. And that will physically remove the cash off your balance sheet. One thing we probably should highlight that you can't just notionally offset any bad asset with a liability. So you can't say, well, yeah, I have all this excess cash, but I do have you know, a big line of credit. So if I offset the two of them notionally, then I'm fine. That's not how it works. If CRA were to audit, if you have cash on your balance sheet and it's a line item, then it's there. They, they don't allow you to do that offset. So 
physically pay down your debt, pay out liabilities, prepay tax installments. And those are all things that won't have a tax implication. Once you have to start stripping money out of your business prior to a sale, then you're going to have you know personal tax on either that salary or the dividend. So again, the more you can be mindful of your cash balance or put structures in place to help you defer that personal element, a uh, personal tax element, you know, the better off you'll be kind of pre-sale. Yeah. And I think that marketable securities is also another pesky one that exactly. we have to deal with. So this is probably not a big issue for businesses that are just starting, but as the business matures and there is excess cash and business owners don't want to pull that money out to pay dividends to themselves or salaries to themselves because they don't want to pay the personal tax on it. They say, hey, I'll just reinvest it in the corporation and I'll have a nice little portfolio alongside of my business. Those That portfolio investment is not going to be an active asset. So you either need to carve that out into a separate company or like Sarah said, pull it out and pay tax on it, which could be could be a sizable amount. Exactly. It, it also has a benefit for creditor proofing. Like we usually don't recommend you keep a bunch of cash and a bunch of marketable securities in your operational company because they're now subject to creditors from your business. Exactly. So again, this is why kind of we've always talked, I think we've said it on multiple podcasts, pre-planned, think about kind of your future, your long-term plan with your business. And maybe there's a structure that works better than just, you know, one operating company that you're the sole shareholder of. Moving down the balance sheet. So next, typically we would see something like accounts receivable. And so again, generally your accounts receivable are going to be a good asset, but you do have to take into account whether there um, are any receivables that you know are more than 90 or 180 days old and therefore really don't have any value. So does your fair market value actually look lower than your book value? And the same with inventory. Generally, you have to look at, do you have any obsolete inventory? And if so, you might make an adjustment downwards. Yeah, there's some other things that you know, like intercompany receivables or or other long-term receivables that kind of go hand in hand with with AR a bit. Unless you're in the business of lending money, it's likely not going to be seen as an active asset. There's an exception where you've got an intercompany receivable and that's with a company that meets all of the tests. So it's also a qualifying company, but it gets really confusing when you've got a large corporate group and you've got subsidiaries and related parties. That's uh, a whole other ballgame that you definitely want to consult your tax advisor on. One one I definitely want to mention is life insurance. Because life insurance is one that's typically on your balance sheet at its uh, cash surrender value, so it's CSV, but typically has more value than what it is on your balance sheet. Or there could be a situation where the insured passes away and you have a huge influx of cash from the death benefit. If that policy is on the life of a shareholder, there's some other requirements there. There is some relieving provisions in the Income Tax Act that will essentially bring that value down so it doesn't throw you offside. I just thought that was an important one to note because we see that quite often. Exactly. And then I'm going to kind of lump capital assets and maybe any real estate uh, together as one. Because typically, you know, especially with real estate, you're going to have it at book value on your financial statements. But especially in our area, we've seen a, a big spike in the value of real estate. And so it could be, this is going to be an asset that's going to help hopefully swing the pendulum in your favor and help you meet that 90% threshold and that 50% threshold. Or it could do the exact opposite. (laughs) If that is not 
you know, fair enough property that's, a, that's being used in the business. If it's that's just a good a, point. I'm making the assumption it's an asset used that you're operating out of. But yes, you're right. If you just have residential rental properties or other commercial properties that you do not use for your business, then you're right. It will be a big swing, not in your favor. That but just again, shows us you're the optimist. I'm the pessimist. I, right? <laughs> I'm the glass half full person. <laughs> You so yeah, both, cap- right? <laughs> oh, exactly. You got to keep it balanced. So capital assets, real estate, you're going to want to figure out what's the current value in the capital asset too. It's been depreciated. Maybe on your books, there's very little value, but in real life, you'd be able to get you know a good amount of cash or value for those assets. So I think we're coming near the end of our time. Yes. There's just one other item I want to make sure we talk about because I did mention how there are assets that don't always make their way onto the balance sheet. One that can really help us out when we're close on the 50% test is goodwill. If we have significant goodwill in the business, that's an asset. So the fair market value of that goodwill needs to be included when we're looking at our 90% test and our 50% test. So there's times where I'm quickly doing the numbers and calculating it. And I'm like, oh gosh, we're like at 48%. And then I get to take that big Excel like, okay. Goodwill. Goodwill should help me. Unless there isn't any, then of course I'm out of luck. But there's been numerous occasions where that's the nice calming breath of, okay, we've got a lot of value there that's going to bump us over this 50% test. Exactly. And that's, unless you've gone out and bought a company, you're not going to have goodwill recorded on your balance sheet. So that'll be kind of the, the one that as you go through this exercise on a regular basis, you're not going to have, you know, intangibles or goodwill as a line item. So make sure you adjust for that. All right. I think we made our way through not every balance sheet, but that's what the typical balance sheet would look like. So a lot of information. Sarah, do you want to sum up some key takeaways for everybody? Yeah, I think it's a repetitive message that I think hopefully people don't get sick of hearing. But again, it's just planning in advance, making sure you understand, you know, what the criteria are so that there's no surprises when you come to you know an opportunity to sell. And I think we're seeing times too right now where people are getting unexpected offers, unsolicited offers. And so you want to be in a position that you know you've maximized your value, you've set yourself up in a way uh, to minimize your tax and ensure that you know you do have this exemption that uh, you can take advantage of. So hopefully that was not too taxing on uh. our listeners. <laughs> Uh, but um, boom. Um, oh, there's a oh. reason we're not comedians. <laughs> exactly. So, well, how did we get in touch with you, ladies, if we'd like to learn a little bit more? Yeah, you can reach us online. You can check our website out, which is curtis.bakertilly.ca, or you can give us a call at the office at 905 579 5659. And thank you. Radio voice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. Please like, follow, and share from the source with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. Thank you for listening to From the Source with Frankie and Sarah. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Visit our website at curtis.bakertilly.ca or give us a call at 905-579-5659. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Frankie Loretto, Sarah Netley, or Baker Tilly KDN. Baker Tilly KDN LLP is a member of the Baker Tilly Canada Cooperative, which is a member of the global network of Baker Tilly International Limited. 
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional accounting advice. Always seek the advice of your chartered professional accountant or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your tax planning.